0: Vacation sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen.
2: <laughs>
0: so if you're wondering what your favorite
2: celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to
0: podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and grow. And monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.
2: Hillary Clinton was a cabinet secretary. And Hillary Clinton is not going to have Barack Obama's view about uh, keeping things away from the cabinet. I think she's going to run a much more distributed government. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in New York today. And we're joined by Washington by a new guest that I'm pleased to welcome to the table, FP columnist Julia Yaffe. Hi. Julia is also a con- Hi. <laughs> contributing writer for Politico magazine and Highline, but we have her here anyway. Also joining us from Washington is FP's executive editor for the web, Ben Pauker. And calling into the studio from her haven in Palo Alto is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. I want to begin by thanking all our dedicated ER nerds for continuing to submit ideas, many of which are pretty good, some of which not so good. We appreciate your enthusiasm and hope you'll keep them coming. The ER mugs have become such a hot commodity that we're now gonna have to start choosing five ER nerds of the week, those who have the best ideas. So send us your most brilliant suggestions and you may get a mug, and it may actually arrive (laughs) at your home unbroken, although that doesn't seem to happen so much. We're at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So recently, from our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle and from Brooklyn and from Palo Alto, we had the following conversation. During our last episode of the ER, we talked a little bit about some of the outcomes that came out of the recent Aspen Strategy Group, notably the letter by a number of Republicans who are there and some who are not, uh, saying that they would not support the Donald Trump candidacy. We also talked about what a Trump national security apparatus might look like. But one of the things that I noticed while I was at the Aspen Strategy Group was a lot of people hovering around the people who seemed likely to be decision-makers in a potential Clinton administration. I don't know, Corey. did you pick up on any of that?
1: <laughs> yes, it's an occupational hazard, I think, at things like that.
2: Right. Every four years, things like the Aspen Strategy Group become job fairs, where people <laughs> stand around. and and, every, and the interesting thing is, it's the same people but some of them are closer to one candidate and some are closer to another. And so the people who were deciding about the jobs last time are asking about the jobs this time. But Corey, based on your experience there over the canopies and the fine wines and amidst the beautiful mountain setting, what did you pick up on about what a Clinton national security apparatus is going to look like?
1: Well, I noticed two things. Uh, The first was that the Clinton team are making no policy compromises in order to consolidate the support that they are getting for free from national security Republicans like me, who are so worried about the danger of a, of a Trump administration, right? So they're not thinking, you know, what can I give these guys for helping support us in a way that if Republicans had not nominated a dangerous lunatic we would be litigating Secretary Clinton's time as Secretary of State and in a position to demand policy compromises in return for support that if it wasn't Donald Trump, none of us would be giving the Clinton campaign. The second thing I noticed, though, is I I was surprised that, that their game wasn't better. That is that I, I really think one of the beauties of the crazy American political system is that it really is a good road test of, of policies. You do get the rigor in the daily grind of, of media cycles about uh, what people's policies are going to be like. And I was struck listening to the, to the Clinton folks that on, on issues like trade policy— or uh, the legacy of Secretary Clinton's choices during the so-called civilian surge in Iraq and Afghanistan that didn't happen, that they, they haven't actually had to defend their positions very well. And if Trump ever gets good as a candidate, um, that could be hard for them because they weren't road tested in the primary and they haven't been road tested in the general so far.
2: Isn't the prospect of Secretary of State Corey Shockey enough for you? <laughs>
1: Right. I doubt that's, I doubt if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve.
2: (laughs) Yeah. All right. So Ben, Julia, you're looking at all of this you're seeing the stars align. You're starting to hear your friends play this nauseating game of who's going to get what job and what's it going to look like. What are you hearing?
0: I'm still hearing conversations about what the heck do we do if uh, Trump wins? I don't, uh, and, and like, where do we take guns and go into the forest or immigrate to Canada? <laughs> like, do we join the partisans? I, I don't. I don't know that. You know, having spent so are you
2: are you advocating armed insurgency against the Trump administration?
0: No, I'm just. You know, I'm people are because you, you sound like saying, you're sounding
2: you're sounding <laughs> like Trump a little bit. Yeah, um, we should look into it.
0: No, I'm just saying that uh, having, sp- I, I think people are, I think it would be jumping the shark a bit, um, or getting ahead of your skis, or whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, I think that, um, or the cart in front of the horse. I, I, I haven't heard people talk about jobs. I think people are still kind of freaking out, and um, being worried that the polls might tighten up again, or that there would be another terrorist attack. Um, I don't know that anybody thinks it's in the in the bag from what I've heard. Well, I
2: mean, look. it's not in the bag, but Ben, you, as you know, there have been stories in the past couple of weeks that the Clinton transition team has already set up an office in Washington, uh, just as the Romney team did the last time around. And and it's, no, well, I'm just saying it's a bipartisan thing. They, they It is now standard practice for transition teams to set up a couple of months before uh, an election even, just so that they're ready to hit the ground running Should they win? And there have also been a number of articles about who the constellation of advisors around her are to try to get a sense of the question that's really on the mind of every government leader around the world, which is, will post-Obama foreign policy differ in any substantial
3: way from Obama foreign policy by guessing at who's involved? Well, I have to say, it feels like the Clinton transition team never actually left Washington. So I don't know why they have to set up a new office here. I mean, I think, you know, part of what Julia is saying is that it's just – you know, this is such an inside the beltway conversation, and that's fine. It's you know, the people who will occupy these key roles are a, ben, are worth. Note- this is a foreign policy nerd. <laughs> exactly, now. we are. You know, we are <laughs> so this, much inside the beltway here in this little podcast studio that of course we have we, to discuss it. The you know, podcast, our we're podcast actually inside studio,
0: Dupont Circle. That's like an, it, right. an even smaller circle inside the beltway circle.
2: We are the lint in the navel of the Washington establishment. <laughs>
0: I so
1: did not need that visual.
0: <laughs> I think, uh, uh, but yeah, I think Ben is right. I think even before uh, Hillary Clinton announced that she was running, people kind of guessed at who would be uh, staffing her, that people like Jake Sullivan would be her national security advisor, who was...
3: Anne-Marie Slaughter. Anne-Marie
0: Slaughter, that, uh, that Michelle Flournoy would probably be her defense secretary, that, um, you know, Kurt Campbell would probably play a very important role on Asia, just as he did when she was secretary of state. Who else? Who would be her secretary of state? Who are the names? Well, there,
3: I mean, David, what do you think about this talk recently in a couple of days that she might keep carry on? Is that is that a ludicrous uh, to assume? Well, she hasn't
2: asked me. my opinion, So I don't I don't really know. My guess is it's probably a little ludicrous to assume because. Uh, Carrie is a bit of uh, uh, a show pony, you know. So,
3: well, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's
2: that's an Let's interesting. Let's not put one. the cart in front of the
0: show pony. <laughs> the show, yeah.
2: Well, I think the real I don't mean problem to is putting him, the, There's
3: an. There's an ego I think, there, certainly.
2: You mean it I in the think, best way the
0: possible,
2: pro- right? I think the problem is putting the show pony in front of the workhorse. In other words, I, you know, she's going to be Secretary of State. She's going to be President. Things are going to be run by her. She's going to need a secretary of state to execute, not to upstage and not to go off on his own tangents. Um, If you were going to pick somebody like that, I probably would go, you know, who who sort of was a big high profile name. I I frankly think Joe Biden would have a better shot at it than John Kerry. Well, but there's a lot of talk stuff. about General Allen,
3: you yeah. know, who gave that well, fiery speech at the DNC uh, and who's, you know, has an enormous amount of experience as a four-star general um, well, leading I think the fight he's against gonna, ISIS. And he's now at Brookings, right? So, well, sort of well, well he could end up someplace. I mean,
2: one of our columnists, James Stavridis, Admiral Stavridis, um, was a, talked about as a potential vice presidential nominee, even though— there was really no chance he was going to be a vice presidential nominee. Uh, and so when you put somebody like that on a short list, they're probably going to end up someplace in the administration. He could be a possible national security advisor. So um, are, are we I the think,
0: short list for the short list? Do, we, do I have a possibility at like a Clinton administration job for being a voice columnist? I think,
2: I think one of the four people on this call has a possibility, and it's not <laughs> – <laughs> and it's and it's not you.
0: Don't be an anti-semite, me. David.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, only only one of us only one of us has a sister in the Clinton campaign. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can I stampede in on this to make a point about civil military issues? Because I found John Allen's Democratic Convention speech an outrageous violation of the norms of American civil military engagement. And oh his my follow-up God. interviews, even more alarming. Um, oh, come on. Which, which
2: general from politics are you going to discount? George Washington, Andrew Jackson, Dwight Eisenhower, no, Colin no, no, Powell, but di- but George there's Marshall. Difference.
1: There's a difference yeah. between actually running for political office versus using your stature as an active duty or retired military person for political purposes, that that is a boundary that has been more respected in the past, and that it's really important for civil-military relations for it to go back to being respected. What Alan did that was across the pale was, first of all, that kind of marching out in cadence. business. And encouraging, (laughs) encouraging active duty military people to vote for Clinton. That was also beyond the pale, as Peter Fever has written so beautifully for shadow government in foreign policy. And the third thing was in his follow up interviews when Trump had had fired a salvo and Alan was responding to it. Alan said he hasn't served. He has no right to judge my military record. And that's the most damaging of anything because that would suggest. Oh, my God. And this,
0: this, was a point, this was a point that General Dempsey made uh, in an interview with NPR earlier this month as well. That sure, you know, there was uh, General Washington and, and Eisenhower and all those guys, but that somehow this, what, what uh, Flynn is doing and what Allen did, um, so, uh, that they're really pushing those, testing those boundaries and could upset the delicate equilibrium, you know, in yeah. the, in our society and, and civilian control of the military. OK, this is
2: just I mean, first of all, I just think this is bitterness because the Republicans are feeling bad that the Democrats gave a better Republican convention than they did. <laughs>
3: um,
2: <laughs> and they they embraced patriotism in a way that is typically Republican. I can't remember a presidential campaign where the candidates at one point or another did not stand up in front of a bunch of former generals and former admirals saying these guys back me. I can't remember a presidential campaign in which there was some involvement by somebody in the military in some leading role competing for a job as a potential vice presidential nominee as Ross Perot's vice presidential nominee that you had an admiral, um, uh, Etc. etc. There's a
1: difference between running for office, which is totally fair, and using the military as a prop in politics. And I grant you that it's a Is that true for
2: Tammy Duckworth?
1: She's run for office.
2: Well, I understand, but is she using it as a prop in politics? I mean, so if so the only appropriate role for the military in politics is actually to seek a job in politics. It's not to help somebody else seek a job in politics, that is Talmudic on a level that my <laughs> one year of bar mitzvah training did not prepare me for.
1: <laughs> I take that as a compliment, David.
2: Yeah. Okay. Good. Well I'm glad. Um let's get back to this sort of core thesis here, which or the core question, which is, you know, Hillary Clinton could become president and, you know, we can speculate Michelle Florna is going to do this or Jake Sullivan's going to do that or Kurt Campbell is going to do this. You know, I think it's pretty likely that Michelle Flournoy and Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan and uh, Bill Burns and Nick Burns and 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 a lot of names that we know from from uh, past administrations are going to end up in this administration. Does that mean that and and we I just made a comment that the Democrats gave a better Republican convention than the than the Democrats. Could we determine from that that this then the Republicans, excuse me, that that the that the Hillary Clinton administration is going to get quite traditional in foreign policy and therefore be a little bit uh, different from Obama, who was veering away from the traditional in his foreign policy?
1: I I believe that the Clinton administration will be will be in fact solid, sensible, predictable. Um, and much more like a traditional Republican foreign policy than perhaps it is like Obama foreign policy.
2: That is, by the way, correct. And I think (laughs) that, you know, know, I mean, you guys can offer another opinion, but there is, you know, a sure sign of that at the Aspen Strategy Group is the way that somebody like Steve Hadley is revered and respected by people on the Democratic side who are likely to come into the administration.
3: Well, can I can, we, can I follow up on that question, Corey or David? I mean, uh, in what particular ways do you think that a, a Clinton foreign policy would be particularly different? I mean, she was the Libya adventurism. Clinton was clearly in favor of, and I don't think she would have supported aggressive nation building afterwards, with the exception of John Kerry's, you know. Failed from the start, Israel-Palestine peace deal. I, I'm, which I think Clinton probably would not have. You know, she certainly wasn't going to put herself in Kerry's role and try and, and, and try and you know find dig up and and find that holy grail. I, I'm I, I'm trying to. I'd like to understand a little bit more from you guys where that nuance of difference is because we talk about Obama's foreign policy, but I'm not sure in practice. It is particularly all that different from what Hillary Clinton would do. Maybe a little bit more hawkish here or there, but,
1: t- okay, but tell me how. A little bit more hawkish here or there actually matters substantially.
3: Okay. Sh- Give me an for- example. Give me an example from, you know, Crimea.
1: Well, one, I do not think you would have gotten the surge in Afghanistan if Hillary Clinton had not supported. Bob Gates's view that you needed more military force there. I think the Obama administration fundamentally does not believe military force can achieve anything, and I think that's not Hillary Clinton's view. I think she's much more traditional in thinking about military force as a component of a broader strategy to achieve political objectives. So that's one thing. I do think you will see a reversion to the nor- to the mean. On the use of military force as an instrument of American foreign policy. The second thing is, for all of the nonsense that she and the people around her are talking about trade policy, I I think, well, this wouldn't be a this would be a difference from the Obama administration early, not the Obama administration late. That is, I think the negotiation of TPP. Is the major foreign policy achievement of the Obama administration. And Hillary Clinton is talking nonsense on trade, but I believe, like Barack Obama, when she's actually president, she will find a face saving way to bring TPP forward because it's such good economic policy and it's such good foreign policy. I think she will be different from President Obama and that she will be much more, she will hold hands more closely with America's allies who feel a sense of drift and a lack of support from this administration. And I think she will also be flintier with America's adversaries than President Obama has been. So I think those are actually all pretty important differences.
2: I, I agree. And 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 I, first of all, I think those are all exactly right. I would go further and say the pivot to Asia that stopped when she left would start again. She would reprioritize uh, America's strategic interests so that they align more appropriately with the redistribution of power in the world. Uh, she would work, I think, uh, as a priority much more aggressively to refine and update international uh, security arrangements, whether it be with NATO or or, or in the Pacific. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence that she would have much more uh, intimate and regular exchanges with foreign leaders uh, than Obama certainly did to start and even that he does today. Remember, Obama's a man who, when once was presented with the chance to speak to a leader of Pakistan, uh, said, what's in it for me? You know, why, why should I do this? Uh, he didn't like to engage. Uh, I believe, however, to go back to the most important point, that Vladimir Putin, and Bashar al-Assad and Kim Jong Un will not expect that Hillary Clinton will be as pliable or inert as Barack Obama was, uh, and they will be correct in, well, in not which is
0: exactly that. why you see uh Moscow throwing in for Trump. Because if Trump is president, they will have even more leeway on the world stage than they did under Obama, whereas they would have far less. With the Clinton presidency, they have already dealt with Clinton as secretary of state. And uh, she was quite tough with them, even during the reset. And um, so you see all over Russian TV, even before we in the U.S. started talking about whether or not Trump is a Kremlin plant. But uh, the Russians have been very clear from the primary season on, when it became clear that Jeb Bush was not going to win, that their man was Trump because he talked about pulling um, America back from the world stage. You have uh, pro-Kremlin commentators on TV talking about uh, a healthy American isolationism, that's a direct quote, Um, and that he understands that America is overextended, that he's going to pull back, that he wants to do business with Russia, that he respects Russia, he likes Putin, he wants to make deals with him. So that they understand that that would open a whole array of options that they didn't even have under Obama, which they, whom they see as quite weak.
2: There's one other point that I'd like to make, which I think is actually two, and then, Ben, you may want to come back on all of this. But one is Hillary Clinton was a cabinet secretary, and Hillary Clinton is not going to have Barack Obama's view about uh, keeping things away from the cabinet. I think she's going to run a much more distributed government, not as White House-centric one in which empowers and entrusts cabinet secretaries more. Uh, and I think that's a good thing for the functioning of the U.S. government. Finally, uh, and this is slightly contrary to the the thesis that she might be a more traditional uh, president a la Republican candidates, Hillary Clinton has a long history of very strong views on issues like human rights. The Chinese are a little bit afraid of a Hillary Clinton presidency because she has been very tough on these issues including 20 years ago when she spoke at the the Women's Rights Conference in Beijing. Uh, They expect more of that. They should expect more of that. I think you will see Hillary Clinton as a better friend to allies, but as a tougher adversary for potential rivals, both in terms of issues where force is involved, but also in terms of a host of other issues where force is not. She talked about smart power. I think she will try to practice
3: it. Uh, as best she can. Uh, Does that answer your question, Ben? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I'm trying, you know, as we've seen over the course of the war in Syria or in the response to Russia's invasion of Crimea, you know, I've been thinking, as have many people, about how a different president would have handled these things and how— a Clinton presidency might do so, and I, I think you know, Corey, your, point, your points are entirely right, and David, yours about human rights is as well. So you know, my feeling is that while Clinton may it sort of embody the values of a more realist um, Republican president, I'm I'm still struggling to see how there are significant changes. You know, sure, a little bit more friendly to America's allies, uh, perhaps um, a more engaged president with other foreign leaders? Um, Will it? But, you know, I still don't see that there are in the big intractable issues that that the presidents deal with. I don't quite see, you know, Kim Jong-un is not going to stop nuclear testing. There are very few points of leverage that... Hillary would have or a sensible president would have. Now, if you've got someone like Trump who's unhinged, who really, you know, would use or abuse the levers of American power to coerce foreign leaders, then, you know, you could see significant differences. So I think, you know, to sort of put a bow on this part of the conversation, you know, it is fair to say that you're going to see a, a pretty similar style of leadership and a foreign policy to what we saw in the early parts of the Obama presidency under Clinton. I don't know. This is the
2: point. This is the point in every episode where I turn to Corey and I say something like, can you give me a good example to illustrate Ben's point from the 1830s? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) In other words, you know,
1: look forward to that, David.
2: Oh, no, I do very much. And I think because these lessons are useful, and one of the lessons that I think um, history provides that that responds to Ben's question is that presidencies tend not to be quite as transformational as we think they are, but incremental changes, which they do produce, tend to make a big difference. And you were making that point earlier, but that is the historical pattern, is it not?
1: Absolutely. You are exactly right, David. That when you think about transitions and policy changes, actually inter-party transitions tend to be uh, as dramatic as cross-party transitions. As, of course, you guys know, most people think the most hostile uh, presidential transition of our lifetimes was Reagan to Bush, where the Bush people thought the Reaganots were... Uh, dangerous ideologues who had put the country in a ditch. Brent Scowcroft asked for every NSC staffer's resignation, and it doesn't it doesn't often happen that you get huge radical changes early. In part because the president actually can't control that much of the process, especially early, while people are having to get uh, are having to get congressional approval to go into the senior level positions. So there tends to be about six months of transition before any big changes begin, unless it's as hostile a takeover as the Reagan to Bush transition was.
2: Well, I think that's a good example. I don't think that, for example, Susan Rice or Ben Rhodes should be preparing their resumes for their potential jobs in the Clinton administration, but there will be more continuity than you just described there. I want to turn to one more issue before we wrap up for this, as we're looking at possible changes that may occur post-election. The Democratic Party was riven because of a difference in views between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton on the issue of Israel and the Palestinians and the traditional American stance. Uh, And Hillary has run saying she is supportive of the traditional view and the Bernie Sanders people were pushing something different. But there is a kind of, I don't know, I just pick it up in the air, it's a kind of a gestalt that I get the sense that something fundamental has shifted in the public view towards this relationship as a result of the depredations of Bibi Netanyahu and and sort of the long-suffering nature of the Palestinian people, and that perhaps even Hillary Clinton vowing to do a traditional policy may have found that the context had shifted a lot. Julia, what's your view on that?
0: Well, you saw a lot of that at the Democratic National Convention, walking around the floor and among the delegates. The Bernie people, um, many of them, had some kind of what is it called, swag that that um, or flair, flair, flair that uh, you know expressed sympathy for the Palestinians. You saw, you know, this kind of traditional leftist. Mood, uh, for example, when Panetta spoke and he was constantly booed, and even when Hillary Clinton spoke and people were chanting no more war, um, the Bernie people. Uh, as for the Israeli-Palestinian issue, I think uh, it's not—I think the the reasons you mentioned are important, but I think they're not the only ones. Part of it is also, I think, the mood inside the Jewish community has also shifted with um, uh, increasing secularization, increasing intermarriage rates— um, there's less and less, I think, affinity in the inside the Jewish community for Israel. Like there isn't and, and Israel is no longer the underdog and it hasn't been the underdog for a long time. It's by far the stronger power. It's maybe the strongest uh power in the region. So why are we constantly backing it? What do we get from this relationship? And I think Israel also hasn't done a great job of explaining that to the American people, what they get from the relationship. Um, I talked to somebody once um, from the American intelligence establishment, and she was saying that she works with uh, the Israelis a lot and that, you know, they're just they ride the relationship really hard. And the second they're done with one thing, they're like, all right, what can you do for me next? And I think there's a sense in the uh, military and um, intelligence and diplomatic establishments in Washington, even on the kind of in the middle and on the right, that. Israel has gotten a little too big for its britches and kind of tends to forget that they're the junior partner in the relationship and that, you know, and and then on a PR level they should they're not doing a very good job of explaining to the American people why they're such an important ally. It's become such a truism and it's become such a now partisan truism that um, it's you know it's actually undermining American support for Israel. You know,
1: I,
3: I don't think the the nuances in the Bernie camp and the Clinton camp and the support for Israel sort of centered around whether there was gonna be a criticism of Israel for occupation. Uh, under the word occupation, and for the illegal settlements in Palestine, uh, and they the platform came out. You know, Hillary may have softened, or Hillary's camp may have softened a little language, but it was a pretty standard pro forma, strong support for Israel. Israel, you know, it said will continue to have a you know a significant military advantage in the region, and the United States will continue to support that. You know the conversation. Also, sorry to interrupt. Yeah.
0: From what i from what I heard from uh, people working on the platform, that the the uh, burning campaign didn't, aside from not putting Zogby there to repre- to kind of represent the uh, Sanders campaign interest in this issue, that basically the Sanders camp approached the Clinton camp and said, "We don't. All we really care about is free college and fifteen dollar minimum wage, and you know the Palestinians, like whatever." <laughs> So um, I think I think they kind of
3: oh Bernie sold them down the river. <laughs> oh, so mad.
0: I think they kind was, of like, they understood that they couldn't you know under couldn't ask for everything, and this was an issue they were willing to toss overboard.
3: I mean, look. These conversations with Israel uh, have have generally been held behind closed doors. You know, from the Bush administration on, and and before that, you know, the position of the U.S. administration has been that the settlements are illegal and should be removed. But these are generally conversations that happen behind closed doors and with a you know degree of carrots and sticks. During the Obama administration, they came out you know into a really nasty war between Bibi and Barack. With you know uh, Netanyahu giving um, an address to Congress that was uh, offered um, by the speaker and and not cleared by the White House, Um, so these these fights came way out into the open. But in a political season as we have now, you know, this is a fight for votes, and I don't think you know the softened Clinton is savvy, and I don't think softening the language. Towards towards Israel and being a little bit warmer towards the Palestinian position is going to convince any more Muslims to vote for Hillary uh,
0: over Trump. So, well, I don't think, to, I, but Trump isn't <laughs> courting those voters no, 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 either, I right? Know, like, like they're gonna a lot of them, I, I think, are going to end up voting for her just because she's not proposing to ban them from the country.
2: Corey, I'm Corey. I'd, I'm I'd like to look beyond the election. Is something changing that's fundamental here? Should The state of Israel, should the Palestinian people expect something different from Hillary Clinton than they got from Barack Obama?
0: Sorry to jump in here. This is uh, we were talking about uh, John Kerry sticking around. Maybe this is his job It's just like the Sisyphus. You know, he's just going to keep negotiating this while a bird uh, pecks at his at his liver.
2: I have a little I have a little theory on that, which is you're neglecting the one big fixer who's likely to be in the Clinton administration. And that's Bill Clinton mm-hmm. and having oh, him. In the oh, White that's House. a
0: nice. Yeah. Thing. And the Israelis love him.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the it, it's it's a re, it's an extraordinary opportunity to have somebody with that experience uh, in that job. And I suspect when there's a big issue that's going to need a call and the president's in one direction, you may well find the former president stepping in. But, Corey, back to my question.
1: I agree with Julia's assessment of what's changing in American attitudes. And I thought it was extraordinary that Netanyahu, first, that that the Republican leadership in Congress would invite Netanyahu to, to challenge an American president. And second, that he would accept the invitation. And I, I think that overtly kind of bare-knuckled playing in American domestic politics uh, accelerates the kind of changes that Julia emphasized. But David, I'm intrigued by your point about Bill Clinton. I think you're right. He's the person who could have that conversation quietly with the Israelis, and it would be a brilliant job for the president of the United States to give to him. Well, I think
2: You know, I I think he's just going to be a significant factor in this. And I think that not only does it matter that the likely incoming president has a lot of foreign policy experience, but it also matters who she's got with her uh, in the White House as, you know, team member number one on these things. Uh, It's never really been seen before. And I think a visit from the former president who's also married to the current president is going to carry a kind of clout that literally no other envoy in the history of the United States has been able to muster. Uh, Well, that's one of the things that we're going to have to look for in a potential Hillary Clinton administration. Uh, We have to draw this podcast to a close because we've discovered that some of the nerds who listen to our podcast work out during the podcast. And if the podcast go on too long, they could injure themselves. Uh, In fact... (laughs) Given their nerdy nature, um, sometimes they injure themselves just turning the treadmill on. Uh, So be careful out there as you think about what you've heard here. And please join me in thanking, once again, Corey, Ben, and Julia. Come back soon. Join us for another ER podcast. We'll talk about something other than the U.S. election, I promise. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.
0: ACAST.COM